White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 704. Come with me And you'll be In a world of your imagination Take a look and you'll see White Rocket Podcast brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I am your host, Van Allen Plexico, and as we celebrate the fifth anniversary of the Ready Player One movie this month, I am joined today to discuss Ready Player One, the book, with the hosts of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, Jason Colvin and James D. Graves, along with one of my regular co-hosts, David Wright, welcome all of you aboard the White Rocket Podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, man. Yeah, glad to be here, man. Yeah, I'm excited to get to talk to you guys. Yeah, it's very exciting to me to have... Uh, David, you're on all the time, so that's that's cool, but I'm excited to have fresh meat, new blood on the show in uh, Jason and, and James D. Graves. You guys, I'm excited because your show... Quickly tell the audience uh, what you guys do. So we take two big hitters from the 80s or 90s or 70s, or sometimes we spill on over into the 21st century, but uh, we pick movies and music that we love. And uh, we started this from conversations that we had when we were running together about 10 years ago where... Jason would say something crazy like that Michael Jackson's Bad album was better than Michael Jackson's Thriller album, and I would have to say that you're completely wrong. And, uh, you know, fast forward 10 years, and he says, hey, I'm thinking about doing a podcast. you think anybody would be interested to listen to a podcast on Frasier? And I said, no, I really don't. I said, if you did Friends, Friends, he's like, oh, no, Frasier was better than Friends. I'm like, dude, you're wrong again. And so 10 minutes after that, I called him up. I said, why don't we do a podcast together where you say these ridiculous things and I tell you why you're wrong? <laughs> there you go. There it there is, go. man. We were just talking to you about our Smoking the Bandit versus Cannonball Run episode. Yeah. I mean, if that doesn't hook anybody our age, then what could, right? <laughs> I mean, that's gold right there. So thank you. Thank I'll tell you. you this Jason is the one. I'm so excited that we're here talking about Ready Player One because Jason is the one that turned me on to the book in the first place. And I, I honestly don't think we would have our podcast had it not been for that book. Like we 
just as a shared moment of all of the 80s references, I think that it definitely planted seeds that ultimately blossomed into the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. I think that's right. Wow. That's awesome. Well, it's just seemed like such a natural topic to have you guys on here with because it's such an 80s thing, right? It, it's so much about that era that we love. It tries to pull so many bits and pieces in and, and does it in a compelling and fun story at the same time. Um, I mean, it was, you know, it was a, a big bestseller. I'll talk, give a little background in a minute, but it, you know, it even got Steven Spielberg to come in to do the movie. That's about as 80s as you can get right there, you know, to have Spielberg do the movie. So, uh, David, quickly, what is, your, um, what is your own connection with the book? I think I, I was hearing a lot of people say they were reading it and were loving it, but because I'm not a big video gamer, I was kind of turned off by the title, Ready Player One, so I was slow to, I was slow to sample it. I can't remember if, uh, if it was your recommendation that really pushed me over the edge or if I told you, I'm not sure. But finally, I had enough people saying, dude, you've got to read this book. And, um, I, and it feels like coldly calculated to just absolutely <laughs> put me in the bullseye of the demographic. I am the guy they wrote this book for. Uh, you know, uh, I know I, I was born in 71. I, I know Jason was born in 73. James Donovan Halliday was born in 72. So, you know, his life experience was our oh, life man. experience. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it was hard to not fall, immediately fall in love with this book. So. It's, it's depressing to me to find out not only am I older than all of y'all, I'm also older than James Halliday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. That's sad. Yeah. Well, uh, I just it just means I get to remember more of the 70s than you guys do, and that's cool. Kind of. <laughs> right. I always say the 70s are like a three-legged, one-eyed dog. You know, it's really ugly, but you still love it. And I just got to hug that dog a couple of times more. All right, so I'm going to talk – I'm going to do what you guys do, and you can chime in too. But you guys always give some basic background on this kind of thing. But I'm going to quickly give my own uh, how I came across it. It actually was out for a little while in book form. And I thought, eh, you know, whatever. I just – I wasn't reading a lot of current science fiction i've been going to work toward crime stuff and all lately in the last you know several years but it came they had a sale on like an on the apple version of audible where it was like five dollars i'm like five bucks i mean you can't go wrong there this was probably in 2013 maybe like two years after it came out so i got it but i was listening to it like at night when i would sleep I, and because i have books that i listen to just to sleep i don't plan to listen to them they just let me sleep and um, every time I'd wake up, I'd start getting interested in it. And so after like two <laughs> nights of that, I, I, I got to start over when I'm awake, right? I got This is one I actually have to pay attention to. And I loved it. And I loved it, loved it, loved it. And I've got a signed copy from from Klein around here somewhere. This was actually nice. funny too, real quick. Is so our uh, David, my mutual friend, uh, Kel Carpenter, uh, work is a librarian in Georgia. And uh, Klein was there doing some kind of event at their library, and Kel knew that I liked the book, so he he got a paperback and went up to to Klein and said, "Would you sign this for my friend Van?" And apparently, what Klein does is he he asks, "Are you a bigger Star Trek or Star Wars fan?" And if you whichever one you say, he either writes, "May the Force be with you" or "Live long and prosper." And so Kel couldn't get me on the phone. So when my book arrived, it says, may the force be with you and live long and prosper. He just put both in to, to cover all the bases. That was pretty cool. That's awesome. So, all right. That's awesome. Um, so, Jason, how did you uh, come across the book first? Yeah, so I had a really good friend named Craig Parrish who basically got down on his hands and knees and begged me to read this book. And 
he's like, you don't understand, man. This is a bullseye for you. And it just so happened we were getting ready to go. We were going to Destin for a vacation for a few days. And I needed something kind of, you know, pulpy for the beach or whatever. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, I'll give this a shot. And uh, I, I literally could not put the book down at the beach when I'm supposed to be playing in the surf with my kids and all that stuff. It was a direct bullseye for me. This is my absolute favorite fictional book of all time. It's wow. the perfect quest story. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's funny because when I first read it, I said, you know, this is like one of the better recent books I've read. And I, li- I listened to the audio book with um, Will Wheaton does just a spectacular job, I think, of, of reading. And then I said, you know, I think this is my favorite book in the last five years. And I've pretty much now elevated it up to like number two all time. Every time I listen to it, it gets a little higher, a little higher. It's it's rough. It has issues with how I apparently didn't have an editor because an editor would have fixed some of the things I think are wrong with it as as just as as a book. Uh-huh. But um, all right. It so is detail. His first novel. It's his yeah, first it was his novel. first novel, right? But an editor at a big publishing house like where he got it published should have gone in and taken done a global replace all with Vin and just. There's almost there's almost nowhere in that book where it says then comma that it could just not say that, which is basically every other paragraph. But anyway, that's just me as a writer. D, how did you come across it and get involved? Jason introduced it to me. He he. I don't remember the specific conversation how it came about, but uh, I am an audiobook guy. Um, I uh, grew to hate reading in law school and in the practice, and so I don't look at words unless I absolutely have to most of the time. Um, and You're so, two writers, you know, but yeah, sorry, <laughs> do audiobooks. I'll, I'll, I will be happy. Look, I got a microphone right in front of me. I will be happy to read your books out loud and then listen to them. Hey, I got tons um, of audiobooks, but, but uh, yeah, when I uh, our library has the Overdrive app, and I saw that it was available in audiobook, and I chunked it in, and I've never gone through an audiobook that fast in my life, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you guys, we all kind of reread it recently, right? And and it seemed like we were all flying through it again. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's highly re-readable, re-listenable. It's a it's a he found a way to make 80s trivia knowledge the most important thing in the world. <laughs> That's it. And yeah. I'll yeah. tell you this, on the rereading this time, there were so many references that I hadn't appreciated before that I it was because of our podcast and doing the the research that we do for our podcast that I was like, Oh, that, okay. I know what he's talking about here that yeah. it flew over my head before. That's cool. Yeah. I, I know I've, I've listened to it like at least six times on audio now over the last seven or eight years. And every time I enjoy it just as much and find some new thing or two to go, Oh yeah. How about that? Yeah. It's really remarkable. So we're going to talk mostly all about the book today, and we have a little trivia at the end. We'll do another show when we get a chance, hopefully before the month is over or somewhere in there, to talk about the movie. But we wanted to go ahead and get in while we could, at least talk about the book a little bit. And I guess the only real background information, I'm thinking that pretty much anybody that's listening to this is going to know what it is. But, I mean, the general idea, the main character, Wade Watts, about, what, 40 years from now, 2045. Yeah. The 2040s. Right. Is trying to win a contest, the whole world is, where you uh, find clues 
that leads you to ultimately taking over the control of this company that, that called Gregarious Games that runs the Oasis. The Oasis is basically the internet. It's replaced Facebook. It's replaced Amazon. It's replaced everything. And it's all the, the, the guy that created the Oasis was a huge nerd who loved 80s pop culture. And so all the puzzles you have to figure out are related to 80s pop culture to some degree or other. And everything that Wade does to get there involves, like, you know, the spaceship he flies in the Oasis, the lightsabers he uses, the all that kind of stuff comes right out of... There's very, there's very little. I found a few things that were, like, either pre-80s or post-80s, but it's only a handful of things. But some of that will pop up in the trivia later, but we'll, or if we don't talk about it, so... Did you guys realize that Klein actually ran a contest like Halliday's contest in the first edition of the book? I didn't find out about it until years later, and it was already done, so I never got to play it. I think that the guy who solved it ended up doing it the, the year after it was published. Yeah. I think it was published. It was published 2011, and the guy solved it in. I mean, won it, I guess, in 2012. I guess there's a website in the book there somewhere, and if you go to the website, then it allows you to play some games, and whoever was the top player. I think this guy won by playing Joust, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. You had to set like a world record high score at it, but that was like the last challenge. The the thing that I thought was neat about it was in the book, uh, the main character, Wade Watts, has to, uh, they had to decipher the first clue by looking at notched letters in Halliday's journal. And yeah, that's yeah. how Klein did it in the book, was he put little notches in the letters in the in the chapters or whatever, oh, and oh, if you fantastic. if you wrote it all out, you got the the website address or something. That is really cool, man. That's yeah, fantastic. I did not know that until we started looking at this. It's so amazing, yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, the winner got a DeLorean. I think that Klein had two of them tricked out to look like the one in Back to the Future, and he Heck has yeah. one, and he gave the other one to the winner. So pretty awesome. God, pretty that'd awesome. be cool. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna dig into the book a little bit, and first up. The plot, I talked to just a very brief bit about the plot, but I want to know what were you guys' favorite scenes? I'll start with D this time. What scenes really jump out to you as like your favorite ones to go back and reread and enjoy over and over? Okay, so I mentioned that I didn't, you know, you sent these questions out and I forgot to look at them, so this is, this is just <laughs> off the cuff. But, but the scene, I, I remember still to the, the moment that I listened to when Nolan Sorrento actually blows up the stacks, yep. that 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 was like a level up for me as far as the book was going. I was like, I was engaged in the book. I was thought it was fun and a nice ride. And then when that happened, I was like, oh crap, this is for real. Like this, he, he, they just killed a bunch of people. This is a real deal. <laughs> the stakes are up. And that so even though that was a you know terrible scene for me, it was a pivotal moment. Yeah, no kidding, Jason. What do you think? Well, the whole battle of, of Anorak's castle was my favorite part. I mean, and, and it kept leveling up right there, right? So, oh, my gosh, we're attacking. How are we going to get inside? The Johnny Five robot drops the bomb. Boom, kills the, the wizard holding the it. orb of Ozobox. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then you have that massive robot battle for me. And then you know, Wade turns into Ultraman. That <laughs> whole thing right there. And then, of course, the catalyst happened. The cataclyst is dropped. And... My mind kept continually getting blown about every 10 pages because it just kept leveling up and, and more and more. The Ultraman against Mechagodzilla, I got to say, is my favorite part of that whole section. But, you know, the Battle of Anorex Castle was my favorite. I got to, again, I'm going to interject real quick because, David, you can back me up on this. You know this is true. 
when I read the part where the Johnny Five robot delivers the bomb to blow up the the, the force field from the inside, I about fell out of the bed or whatever. Because I have an almost identical scene in one of my books, and, and my book came out like the exact same year, 2011. Oh, wow. And David okay. has read it. He knows. I didn't rip him off, and he didn't rip me off because they came out at the same time. And we both had a robot deliver a bomb to blow up a force field from the inside. I'm just like, that's fantastic, man. That's, that's awesome. What a great idea! It, I guess, it must be a great idea. We both thought of it at the same time. It's insane. <laughs> but anyway, so when I'm when, when I'm reading that scene where Johnny Five is going around, going through, you know, getting past all the Sentry robots because he's authorized and he's got the bomb in his hand, I'll flash back to Batman '66 where Adam West is running around with the bomb over his head. He's like, <laughs> it, sometimes having trouble getting rid of a bomb. That's what yeah. I was thinking of. <laughs> so what's your favorite scenes, uh, David? I mean, Jason's right. The Ultraman versus Mecha Godzilla, that's just ridiculous. You can't you can't get better than that. Like the way the the action and the stakes kept increasing and then it culminates in that. Uh, I I am a huge fan of how this story is structured and and it ends with that big finish. I'm not gonna I, you can't beat that. But as far as like picking out another scene, instead of a fan of any specific scene. I'm just a fan of the whole concept, like mm-hmm. the whole the whole VR, like Metaverse Oasis kind of environment that he's in and all the possibilities that it gives you. Probably the thing that made the biggest impression on me is when not only does he figure out that the first clue can be found on his public school's planet. Yeah. And that it's based on a classic D&D module, <laughs> but that there are different instances of that, you know, all over the place. And then you get in there and he's playing joust against like some undead king, you know, <laughs> undead lich. And uh, so to me, that made an impression on me just because it kind of opened up for me what the possibilities of the story could be. I'm already a fan mm-hmm. of like VR type sci-fi, like hack, what I call hacker hero. It starts with probably Necromancer, the whole cyberpunk kind of look to it all. And this is actually similar similar to that in the sense that it's a dystopian world, right? It's set in the near future where everything has gone completely to crap. And uh, Snow Crash is another one by Neil Stevenson. It's a classic. That one's probably that one was my favorite until Ready Player One came along. I've also read Hacker and the Ants by Rudy Rucker. All of these are really fun because it kind of gives you a oh oh and you got to read uh, Strictly Analog. That one is also amazing. Van, you would like that because it's um, mm. it's kind of a crime noir kind of approach but it deals with this kind of VR virtual reality environment. And uh, I like all of that. So I'm already a fan of that stuff. And then you add to that all the pop culture references of my childhood, of all the references that I'm going to get that I would have chosen if I were writing the book. Mm -hmm. And the one-two combo of like VR, sci-fi, and 80s pop culture is just, I am yours. I am all yours. Wherever you want to take the story, I'm there. I will follow you anywhere, even if it's Ultraman versus Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. Well, that's one thing people have kind of, if there's, I don't know, criticize, we'll talk about some of the criticism in a minute, but was that it really does kind of, it, it includes all forms of media, but it really is kind of aimed at gamers more than anything else. And that, I agree with David, that was something I was not as excited about because that's pretty much my lowest level of interest of all these various forms of media. But I guess as a game itself, it kind of had to because you needed the competition of, like if, if every challenge was recite a movie, 
when he did that the second time, I was like, okay, let's get on past this. You know, like we know he's reciting right. the movie. We get it. We know that he knows every word of every, you know, every movie, whatever. But uh, let me jump back. I think I might have said necromancer. Obviously, I meant neuromancer. But as far as the references go, you know, I'm pure 80s. Klein seems like he was like a little late 70s mixed in there, too. I'm yeah. not as much into the uh, giant monster and robot Japanese stuff as he was. But, you know, I was also there for, you know, adventure on Atari 2600. I oh, know yeah. exactly for sure. what that room looked like, what that dragon looked like. <laughs> you mentioned a couple of things again. You mentioned uh, that Ludus, the, the school planet, is where the first challenge ends up being i thought that was so brilliant because it meant that anybody could play not just people who were high level with a lot of credits or whatever right any because that's how wade was able to do it all he needed was a way to get over to the other side of the planet and 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 h didn't even need that because it was like right next to h's high school basically so i thought that was such a good idea you know to make it available to anybody and not just to people who could afford it my favorite scene to finish this part out, there's two things Wade does that I think are so cool. One is that, ex- that extended part after Artemis dumps him. And he's by himself doing nothing but trying to solve the, the, the second, I think, puzzle. And he's on his asteroid with his spaceships and everything. He meets with Shodo. I would shut up. Yeah. During that part, and all that, that whole bit was really cool to me. I just liked him being out there like this free agent Jedi Knight lone wolf guy. You know, that was cool. And then the way that book two or whatever ends, he's, he's doing okay, except he's found out that Sorrento's got the crystal key and he's freaking out, but he's still, he's in his apartment. He's got money, you know, he's safe. And then you start the next book with them cutting him out of his apartment and taking him off into indentured servitude. And are you when you first read that, aren't you like, what the, what is going on here? Because that's when it quits being virtual reality. That's actually him in the real world in Great Jeopardy, which we hadn't really seen except for the, the explosion that Dee mentioned, right? So I like that, that they brought the stakes higher on that last section. It was yeah, incredible. I- I totally agree with H. Balls of titanium to pull that <laughs> yeah. off, right? Yeah. yeah. I was going to say his whole escape, his orchestrated and premeditated escape plan for getting out of IOI, that was that was a pretty cool sequence. Brilliant. Yeah, and he had to trust that the codes and everything he had were going to work, and he couldn't find that out until it was too late. Yeah. Hey, have you guys <clears> – <throat> I'm sorry to digress here. Um, have you guys read American Kingpin? No. No. Okay, so it's the true story of the guy who basically invented the Amazon for drugs, weapons, and everything illegal on the internet. And it talks about the dark web, and that was obviously the Silk Road is is a, the the thing that he created. Um, but I immediately, when we when I listened to it again, I had come back. For, you know, I read that book in between the last time I read it and this one, I immediately thought of that, of there is this dark web out there where you can get these things like back passwords and codes and stuff into this, and you never know when or where where that's going to come up. So I thought it was was brilliant to have that all the way back in 2011, have that be his way to sneak into the the behind-the-scenes of the computers at IOI. Brilliant. Yeah. I thought Klein did a really good job of writing a story where so much information can be communicated so quickly, like basically instantaneously to the whole world. So that's actually a hard story to write where the information just gets out so fast 
what are the complications that come from that? And, you know, you see a lot of times in movies and TV shows that the writers are contriving a way to, like, separate the characters from their cell phones. So just to have some drama in the story, because with that in your pocket, you know, information so easily, easily come by. And here is a world where all that's just ramped up to some exponential degree. And uh, I thought he pulled it off. You know, I think that works. You know, like as soon as as soon as you solve a puzzle, well, all the Sixers are on it and they're doing it in a thousand different instances. And you've you know, how do you keep up with that? So I thought he did a real good job of of kind of being consistent with that all the way through. I, I, I like that one of the ways that they find out where the key is, is that the Sixers are so stupid that they all go there. When when somebody when when whoever it was that found it either Artemis or H I forget find it they go there and everybody just watches where all the Sixers are going and they know where to go I mean they don't make that mistake but once but I do like that they're so overconfident and so stupid that they do that that was pretty cool did did they're as um, clumsy as they are stupid yes exactly did <laughs> I this is the one I got to know did any of you figure out any of the puzzles before Wade or the others did from the clues. I sort of did halfway. Okay, what'd you get, David? Uh, well, this this no. I, short answer: No, I didn't solve anything. Okay. But <laughs> I I immediately knew that the one puzzle was going to involve Captain Crunch and the whistle in the cereal box. I, I knew that immediately, um, just because I was familiar enough with hacker history to know that back when they were having to hack phone tones to yeah. get into computer lines, right. yeah, someone discovered that that whistle that came free in the cereal box was the exact frequency that the phone company uses. And they would blow this Captain Crunch whistle into the phone and be able to hack into computers. Yes. I knew about that. So I immediately recognized, you, you recognized that, that reference to Captain yeah. Crunch. That's my favorite clue is the captain conceals the jade key in a dwelling long neglected, but you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are all collected. Burma shave. <laughs> That's what it always sounds like to me. But uh, That's it. The one that I figured out was just when they couldn't get in the crystal door and it said charity, faith, hope. And I'm like, charity, faith, hope. I was just like Artemis or whoever. I was like, because I think when Wade says that, she's like, that sounds familiar. And I'm like, it sounds familiar. And I went, faith and hope and charity. Three is a Because I watched my schoolhouse rock. I remembered faith and hope and charity. And I was like, it's three. It's got to be three is a magic number. That was the only one I figured out. So I didn't know anything about Zork or the captain crunch or any of that i i was clueless on those but uh i don't know if i could have even done the war games thing half i mean i'd I'd seen that movie two or three times but there's no way i could have done the how many times must wade have watched all this stuff to just happen to know every word of dialogue from war games Uh, yeah that is the that's the one thing that i i just felt was a too big of a break from actual reality was how can you possibly at what was he 18 years old have consumed literally 30 years of detailed information and have it at your disposal. I, that one was a little tough for me to swallow. Yeah. And, and it, and the fact that he had it all tells me that like BitTorrent must be awesome in his time and day and time. Cause there's no way he bought any of that. And it's not like he had all that on Apple t- on iTunes or anything. You know what I mean? He, on his computer, he had like every TV show, every movie, every comic, every book, and I'm like, how much would that be worth if he'd if he'd paid if he'd legitimately paid for all of it? It had to all be, you know, black market or whatever. Yeah. So. Yep. Bit, BitTorrent was pretty big back in 2011. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, 
that's 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 how my ex girlfriend back in the day got all the viruses on her computer. So I know that that was a, that was a thing. Yeah. All right, I got an, all right, another big another question. I got to ask you: If you made it far enough into this game, which giant robot would you choose, David? Which giant robot would you have chosen? Man, I, well, we didn't we didn't really hear all the options, right? So I just kind of yeah. get to pick one. Yeah, just assume it's uh, there because there were a bunch that never got chosen, you know. I don't know if I can name another giant robot that we didn't already see. So there was a there was a show that was kind of like Ultraman, where it was a similar giant character, but I'm not remembering the name of it. I think it might have been Space Giants, where the whole family lives in a mountain and they all turn into jet planes or something like that. I don't know. That's the best I got. I don't have a giant robot. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll take one of the Marvel Shogun Warriors. I see. There you go. I'm with you there. I'm 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 gonna go ahead and say I would take Mazinga because I've got the the Bandai little. Well, a little, like $100, but like about that big Mazinga up on my bookshelf that I put together. I love Mazinga. I had all those show, and I had Godzilla and all the Shoguns when they were about, yay, you know, about three feet tall. So, Jason, uh-huh. which giant robot are you taking? Well, the easy decision for me is I'm taking Mechagodzilla. If it's available, yeah. Mechagodzilla all day, every day. But the first thing that popped in my head when you asked this question, I'm, I'm probably bending the rules of this question a little bit, but I'm taking a giant version of IG-88. From the Empire Strikes Back. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, okay. I don't know that that's a giant robot, but if I could make it giant, that's what I'm taking. <laughs> I like it. That's interesting. D, what do you think? This one, I'm pretty sure I actually wore this T-shirt to. Jason and I went and saw the movie the night that it came out, and I'm pretty sure I wore my Voltron T-shirt mm-hmm. to the showing. I don't even remember if that was one of the options. If Voltron was one of the options or not. I think the think Sixers so. had Yeah, yeah I think the Did Sixers they? had okay, him, yeah. So I, yeah, I would do Voltron, and the only reason... I didn't even watch the show. I did not watch the show, but I had I had all of the guys that met up together to create the larger uh, power robot, and so that's... Uh, I remember playing with those toys in the 80s as a kid, so that was that'd be my choice. Voltron, for sure. I guess I should have named like my ro- my giant robot from my book that <laughs> just came out a few months ago. Valus yeah. V, yeah, there you go, Valus V. That's what I picked. But uh, did anybody kind of figure out what the deal was with H? I mean, I felt like it was awfully suspicious that he seemed like a perfect kind of frat boy guy, you know, but yet only was very mysterious background, had just the one letter as the name, and so I was suspicious of H all along. But I, I never, I, and and there was always that sense of people in the Oasis are not who they act like, who they pretend to be, right? But did what did what did you think about H, and did anybody figure it out? I'll throw it out there. I didn't figure it out, but I, I so for me, I never doubted his sincerity, okay, or his genuineness as his friend. Okay. But he was sort of clouded in mystery this whole time. So I thought, like you, I was a little suspicious of who's on the other end. Mm-hmm. But that's about as far as I got. Yeah, okay. I mean, I didn't figure it out specifically, but he referenced an old hairy guy named Chuck in a basement enough times yeah. that I'm thinking this is Chekhov's gun, man. There's got to be something happening where somebody is not who we expect them to be. Um, but I didn't predict it as H. It was just kind of... I tried. I tried deliberately, honestly, not to figure out those mm. kind of things because I enjoy the surprise. But when that came along, I was like, "Oh yeah, of course, that makes sense." It wasn't of. Oh my goodness, it was a. Oh yeah. Oh, there you go. Sure. Yeah, I think that's right. David, what did you? 
I mean, I think the same thing, you know, there was enough there to understand what was coming, that there was going to be a character, that this was going to be the character who didn't look anything like their avatar. Now, to, to say we specifically predict it was going to be uh, a black girl from Atlanta, Georgia, you know, <laughs> probably not. But like Jason, I never doubted the genuineness of the friendship. But obviously, in this kind of VR world where everybody's represented by avatars, they can look like whatever you want to. You know, there's an opportunity there to kind of explore that theme of identity, you know, and, and also self-presentation. And um, I think it, he would have missed a trick if he had not had at least one character that, you know, that played with that. Because the and others so, were pretty much dead on, relatively right, speaking. Right. Yeah. And then also, you know, to see how Wade reacted. When he when the reveal happened, yeah, you know, th does the friendship magically disappear mm -hmm. when just because it doesn't look like the avatar, you know? Yeah. And I thought there was an important uh, an important message there, you know. So I was and and H clearly was worried about that. H was concerned that a combin e e either some kind of prejudice on Wade's part or being dishonest with him for so long, some combination of those two factors were going to influence. And he, he kind of had to take a moment, you know, when he got on the got on the van or whatever with H, with Helen, you know, he kind of had to take a moment. And she was kind of worried that they had, that, that she, you know, that that was it. But he's like, oh, you're my buddy, you know, and they kind of they kind of got past it. Yeah, it, it was cool. It's, it's interesting to consider that if you can choose your demographic, mm. you know, if you can choose what you look like and who you are, would you choose to be you? Or would you choose to be somebody else? Yeah. And uh, I think that choice says something about the character, you know, and I think mm -hmm. we learned enough about Helen that her choice made sense in the context. So, yeah. So it was, I thought it was good. Yeah. Well, what about now? We're not going to talk about the movie this episode, but I do think it was interesting to kind of compare how the book versions come off in retrospect after the movie, because the movie really made all five of what they called the high five in the movie it made them all good. You know, in other words, we like all five of them. They're all likable, good characters. In the book, I think they're a little more shaded and nuanced. And honestly, after watching the movie and then going back and reading the book again a couple of times, Daito is a complete jerk. He's never nice. He's never good. <laughs> and yeah. Artem Artemis, oh my God. I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how to put it into words, but Artemis was like working my last nerve almost every time that she pops up. And wow. I was I was really surprised by that because I like her so much in the movie and I like Daito and Show so much in the movie that I was really shocked at how less good they come across, how less well they come across. Jason, do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, I do. I totally agree with you and I'm glad that you're saying – I see Dave shaking his head. <laughs> Artemis in the movie – is charming and smart and competent and likable. Like, and in yes. the book, she's bitchy a little bit. Yes. She's a little grumpy. She's a little bit, she's always on edge with Wade and kind, yep. of, kind of treats him like crap. Yep. Yes. That's my take. I do like, I think the movie did a better job with the Artemis character and with IROC, of course. I mean, it's yeah. hashed out a little bit more. Uh, I like H better in the book than I did the movie. Okay. D, what do yeah. you think? Y'all look like y'all have a I disagreement. That, I think that's Jason's opinion, and everybody's <laughs> entitled to their opinion. It's just that his opinion is wrong. I'm spiking my football. It <laughs> is so wrong. So number one, I liked Artemis way better in the book. She was Interesting. stronger. She wasn't 
pushed around so easily. She wasn't. I, you don't. She was a. Uh, she was not a bee. <laughs> she, she had a mission. She was mission driven. That was that. That was the whole point. She was grumpy. Uh, you're no, grumpy. I like. I agree with Jason. <laughs> I I like. I mean, I like. I, I agree with you saying D that I like in terms of professionalism how she was in the book. Totally agree with that in a professional sense of what she's trying to do. Hundred percent. But it's like anytime anything happened, she would be like, eh, "Well, Wade." You know, she would or Parzival, she would just jump on people and jump and fly off the handle every time. A couple of times, H has to say, "Chill out, Artemis." My gosh, yeah, you know. That's right. She yeah. begrudgingly says, "Good luck, Parzival." When yeah. he's the only hope they have. At, yes, at the end, they're like, you know, go Z, go Z, and she's like, "Yeah, good luck, Parzival." And he's like, "I guess." Come on, man. <laughs> what? What in the world? Okay. And, then, oh, and then oh, oh, here's my example. Here's my perfect example. He says, yeah. "I'm when I win, I'm going to give. I'm going to share it with all of you." And everybody else that's still alive in the book is like, "Oh, that's awesome." And she's like, "Oh, right." You know, like, oh, like you're really gonna do that, and and like, and he has yeah. to he has to go out and like swear, and she's like, oh, I was just kidding. I'm like, <laughs> what the heck, man? Yes, I'm gonna yes. give you billions of dollars. Oh, sure, whatever, jerk. You know, come on, oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> David, you're you you got you're sitting on go. Okay, surely you can't be slug. <laughs> um. Okay, if Jason keeps saying nice things about the movie, I'm going to start praising The Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That will be, be harder than solving The Last Quatrain, <laughs> I think. Why? Uh, um, I adored Artemis in the book. I found her completely charming. I was Wade. I was falling in love with her. All the things you're talking about speak to her sense of competition. And also of living a life of isolation in this broken world where she's living in the oasis. So to me, that sense of competition, that that edge of cynicism, you know, you see that in in uh, I don't know, you see it in gamers, boys and girls, right? So I, I think all of that is just showing her on equal ground with Wade that they are that they were peers, and I just found them to be intellectual matches, and I I just I just thought she was an awesome character. I got nothing bad to say. All right. I also. Did not have a problem with, how do you say it, Daito? Mm -hmm. um, you're saying he was a jerk in the book. I Nothing did not get but. that sense at all. But I also obviously got to know him the least. Like yes. he was more of a cipher than anybody else. And and then, of course, he doesn't make it all the way through the book either. So uh, he was he was probably the, you know, the least developed. The one we got to know the least about or become the least familiar with. But I wouldn't say that he rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't think. I never got an impression that he was a jerk or anything. He was just kind of more aloof and detached, you know. Well, um, he's so I look at it like this. Well, so, so, so D is Daito and Jason is Shoto because D is always in the group chats, but he never comes around. <laughs> he's the cipher. That's true. Now, I don't think he's a jerk. He's just he's just mysterious. He's the, he's the cool older brother that when he shows up, then, okay, you know that you're, you're cool now. You're not just being goofy. <laughs> so I, I think, because I, 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 I didn't talk about Dido either, but I, and you, you threw this out in our text chat before, and I, I stated my opinion then. I like the fact that he is, He's guarded and he's aloof and he is reserved about having any connection with any of these other guys because mm -hmm. I think that makes 
what happens ultimately, what his sacrifice is and what he does, it it's a good character arc. Like he's the one that gives them the key, one of the keys to success to win the whole competition because he wants Wade to win it. He wants him to win it. If he can't have it, he wants Wade to have it. I mean, mm. I think he's he's Boromir, right? He's the mm. guy that you're just kind of like, I don't know about that guy the whole time. And then when it comes down to it, when it comes down to the fight, even if he has to sacrifice himself so that everybody else can win, he's the guy who's going to stand up and do that. So he, I like, I, I like he's, it. I he's Boromir if at the Council of Elrond, Boromir had said, screw you guys, I'm going to do this myself, <laughs> I don't need any of you, grabbed one of the elves and left. That's but I like it. I like it. I like it. It's just not a hundred percent. That's the Boromir figure. Okay, that's interesting. All right, is let's it go. weird that I, you guys keep calling him Wade? I mean, he's Parzival to me. Yes, Parzival. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I, I will always. It'll always be Wade Watts because of the alliteration and the Peter Parker and the Clark Kent and all of that stuff. But um, I also wonder if just this time and going through, if Wade, if uh, Wade Watts is also somehow a little bit Will Wheaton. Oh, yeah. Well, that's who he is in the audio. Yeah. Well, and yeah. this, th- they never mention, Klein never mentions this, but you notice that Wade's full initials are W O W, which is World uh-huh. of Warcraft. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kept thinking it's World right. of Warcraft reference, but I don't know. Maybe not. All right. Let's go around the horn real quick and just tell me your favorite character to overall and why quickly. And then we're going to go to the setting, the stacks and everything in the Oasis. So, all right, David, your favorite character and why? Well, I mean, is Parzival. I mean, for all the obvious reasons, uh, I, I, you know, he's the main character. He's the he's the he's the knight on the quest. He's got his he's got he's got his friends around him. I do love H. I love the uh, the standalone simulation of the basement where you can go hang out, uh, you know, and you have all your cool stuff there. I want I want my own standalone simulation. I want my own basement. Yes. Uh, yeah, but I'm in it right. But now. I mean, is, but is there another character that comes close to Parzival? No, I'm. I like Parzival. Okay. I like his whole look. I like the choice of his name. I like, you know, I like his whole presence. How he goes. How he's world famous in the Oasis, and he's like this anonymous, broken, you know, not broken, <laughs> kid, yeah. broke school kid, yeah. you know, living in a trailer park. You know, uh, he's got his he's got his high, little hideout at the beginning of the of the um of the story inside. I imagine it's like a junkyard, and he. He has to charge his battery with an exercise bike just so he doesn't completely have his body. These are all my trivia questions going by, by the way. I'm sorry. (laughs) David's just laying out the answers to all the trivia questions. Just just to let you know, Jason and I both are from Oklahoma. So we saw Oklahoma City as as his location to begin the book. We're like, heck yeah, all right. Uh, That's right. Um, but, But he actually gives his address. Is that one of your trivia questions? No, no. Okay, good. He gives his address, and he sa- it says 700 Portland Avenue in Oklahoma City, and I was like, I want to go by there. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's a 700 North and a 700 South. Either one of them potentially could be okay. a place for stacked up mobile homes in the future. Yeah, but, um, but it was kind of cool to, this time going through, going, oh, they actually give the address, and I'm in town. I'm going to go check yeah. this place out. Yeah. I'd forgotten they did that. Yeah. Jason? I mean, it's clearly possible. Everybody reading the story is through his eyes. It's Parzival all the way, 100%. Although I do want to give a shout-out to the sweet old lady who fixes him breakfast and stuff like that yeah. in the stack. Mrs. I can't remember her name. I but. can't remember either. Oh, but. Mrs. Gilmore. Mrs. Gilmore, Mrs. yes. Gilmore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Right. Dee, did I, I don't think we got your favorite. Okay. Did, did we get your favorite character? Or you had a commentary there, but I don't know if you said it. This is Parzival. I, I, I agree. I don't think you can pick anybody but Parzival. I mean, um, okay. uh, Ernest Klein said if he was picking who he was, it would be Parzival or James Halliday. But if I'm not picking Parzival, because obviously everybody else is picking Parzival, I'm going to go with Ogden Morrow. I like how he suddenly becomes a part of the story. He seems to be in the background, but I also just kind of like who he is as a person. He's the guy who he really was. Uh, he, he was Wozniak, right? Like, I mean, he was the guy who yeah. I'm making these things because I love doing this. And the other guy can go and make them big or whatever. But he um, Jason and I have talked a couple of times, actually several times about the Us Festival in 1983, which was a Steve Wozniak concert that he put mm-hmm. on. Um, and every time I hear and think about Ogden Morrow, I have that picture in my head of just this guy who deeply cares about the emotional well-being of those around him and, and the world as a whole. So Ogden Morrow is my non-parsable choice. I, I was going to go. You guys went with uh, Jason went with Oklahoma. I'm going to go with Atlanta, my third home away from home, and go with H because I really I, I enjoyed H even more in the movie. And so I thought that what a, what an awesome character all the way around. Very similar to, to Parzival, but in different ways. Let's see, we've got a couple of things we want to get to, and our time is zipping along here, so we're going to try to speed things up. I want to get your sense about the setting. I'm not going to go into too many specifics in my question. I'm just going to say, what were your, what was your, because there's, there's two settings, right? You've got the real world, which is an energy crisis world, the stacks and all that, which is, a, which is by itself a great science fiction story setting. And then you've got the Oasis, this amazing full immersion virtual reality world. So this book gives you not one, but two completely separate, really fascinating settings. David, let me start with you then. Just any thoughts or reactions to the setting that this story takes place in? The two. Well, well first of all, you know, near future and it's believable. Like, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like you can you can see how we're going to get there. <laughs> we hope we don't, but you can see how it could it could happen. Yes. The, the idea of the Oasis, you know, we're... We're kind of seeing talk of that now with the idea of the metaverse, and I, I've read up on the, you know, uh, on what the challenges are in realizing something like the metaverse, and I and uh, it's going to be hard to uh, to see it actually accomplished. But um, I love the idea that that there's this virtual reality that where you're you're existing in avatars, and this is not only how you interface with the internet, but it's how you interface with the rest of the world, and that the rules of physics disappear you know like mm-hmm. the whole thing with the um distracted globe nightclub and how the dj could spin the whole nightclub uh on his turntable you know and stuff like that so uh, the possibilities that open up with the virtual world so i uh, like i said I've, already, I've read other vr fiction and i'm a fan of of all that i've read and so uh that, if i'm picking between the two worlds <laughs> i'm taking the oasis uh, <laughs> yeah. um but uh, i i just i'm fascinated by the possibilities of it you know how you just walk along and you can you can just conjure up a window, a screen in front of your face and turn it around for people to see, you know, or um, just all, all the things like that, though, the way they translate, you know, the fact that you're really working on a computer and moving files around with that VR interface of, uh, you know, of, of how you're interacting with everybody. So I, I think it's I think it's very cool. Yeah. Jason, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I same as Dave, I like that the real world has sort of reached that Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. It's bad and getting worse. Yeah. And then the Oasis, you know, you know, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I'm a big location guy. So like I like to visit places where movies have been shot or 
events happen. You know, we're we're pretty close to Dallas where JFK was shot. It's neat to go visit those actual spots and having the oasis where you go anywhere in the real world or the fictional world. Super cool. Love it. So absolutely. Yeah, I think that the magic of uh, making something that is terrible but yet familiar is the key to creating a good dystopian future. And that's absolutely what he's done here. And then it's kind of funny. You talk about the metaverse. He really, it's almost like a, a self realizing prophecy here because all of the Oculus VR people are required to read Ready Player One as a part of their as a part of their job requirements. They have to read like a lot of them will tell you, I your book inspired me to go do this. And even without it being VR, we even today can still see it. I mean, people lose themselves in their phones, right? We mm-hmm. block out the reality of the world around us that we don't like. And we become immersed in what's going on on Facebook, what's going on on Instagram or whatever. And we we get lost in it. And it's exactly, I mean, it's totally what he, it's the stepping stones to what he has predicted as the future. And I think it's it's flawless. What I really liked, though, what my favorite part of the, um, the beginning was his experience on Ludus with his classes in that he could go to school. They basically have eliminated the ways that people can torment each other on mm-hmm. in this virtual school. Plus, they get to go inside of the heart to see what the aorta is like. They get to go to not just Egypt, but ancient Egypt to see what the, the pyramids were like. I I want that. I want that for the future for my grandkids or great-grandkids or whatever it might be. I think that would be fair. I want it for me. I want to be able to go right. to, I want to be able to go inside of a heart, you know? Um, so I think that's, I think he did a fantastic job creating something that was real and terrible yeah i i like the idea that and i don't like the idea that you can create an artificial virtual world that's so enticing it's almost like a hard drug and absolutely the real world gets neglected because of that the same folks that walk around staring at their phones and running into the walls and i teach classes of them every day believe me um (laughs) And I've done it myself, probably. Um, those that same thing is what gets you that rundown world while everybody's on in the oasis. That's that's so believable, you know. It's depressing. Right. It's it sucks that there could be this awesome virtual reality world, and the price that we almost inevitably have to pay for it is neglecting the real world. And you know that's what would happen. It just yeah, oh. yeah it does. Like you say, does a really good job of selling the the appeal of of the oasis like yeah. you would definitely want to be there and of course we see that you have you got to worry about the, your physical health in the real world and and the story glorifies this vr world right it glorifies the oasis yeah and the heroics of the avatars and all this kind of stuff but um but also what you know klein touches on is things like the anxiety that they have when they have to actually go outside yeah or when they have to actually meet people you know, and then you see these anxieties that that are referenced, and um, you know, and that's also very realistic. And it's it's not uh, a good thing. It's not really dwelt on in the book, but but I think it's a realistic side effect. And um, and you know, it's the kind of thing where you're gonna 
as a society, we're going to have to figure that out if this is yeah. the direction we're going. That's another thing, by the way, I like about movie Artemis is that she has contempt for the Oasis, even as she's one of the masters of it, right? She's so good at everything there, but yet she tells Wade, you're trapped in this illusion, right? My dad got swallowed up by it. I'm here to bring, basically to bring it. If, if Artemis had won, I, she might have pushed the big red button. Yeah. She might have. Yeah. Well, Whereas the book Artemis is much more about having her blog and her TV show channel and all that. You know, she's a little more into it, you know, I think. Yep. So, all right. I've got to ask you two, you two 80s uh, show hosts, how do you think this book, we talked about how it reflects the virtual reality and the future world, but let's look backward now. How does it reflect on 80s pop culture in a good way, a bad way? In other words, what? how do you evaluate the way that it presents and deals with the stuff that we love, 80s culture? Well, I, I mentioned it before. I mean, I think this book kind of was part of the inspiration behind us doing our podcast. And we, we are just riding a wave with this 80s fascination that is going on right now. But I think that wave was escalated substantially by this book. I tell I told Jason, you know, my kids love 80s music and it isn't just because I played it for them. Like it is the movies and the music of the 20th century by and large are substantially better than they have been for the last 20 or so years. And it's not just me as a, a nostalgia guy saying this, it's like kids Kids, my kids' age are like, Dad, they were better back then. It's, the music was better back then. The movies were better back then. It's just, it's not as good as it was. And if you if you walk around in in a Target or a, a Walmart or something, you're going to hear 80s music on the radio. That's what they yes. play. Yes. Like, they are not playing music. Like, when I, in the 80s, they weren't playing 40s music on, on the radio. That's when right. I, they weren't playing 40s music whenever yeah. I was at a store. They were playing 80s music. So there's something about this particular time in history. I think about this all the time. I think about the struggles that my parents' generation had, and I think about the struggles that my kids have. And I think we as a group, we Generation X as a group, are truly, truly blessed to have been born in a incredible time that we may never ever see again. Yeah, one hundred percent. Well said. Yeah. So, as far as the book goes, I think that he did the perfect job, just like a Gen Xer would, of saying this was the ideal. This was the thing that everybody should know and strive for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I'm. I got nothing to add. That's exactly the way I feel. I agree, and I think that. Other decades have had their proponents and their and their venues like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley told us the 50s were awesome. And there's all kind of stuff that's always told us how great the 60s were all the way up through Austin Powers and stuff, right? Um, the, sure. the 70s are the 70s, you know, the three-legged dog. But, yeah, I mean, I was <laughs> glad something did come along and say the 80s were maybe the best one ever. You know, and when I teach American history, I tell my students, I'm like, you guys missed out. <laughs> I'm just telling you right now, you missed out, man. You don't even know. So, David, go ahead. Well, I mean, I am class of 89. So, right, the 80s began with me in third grade, ended <laughs> with me in college. I am the purest child of the 80s you can possibly be. Um, so this is my life. Like, it doesn't seem that long ago. All this stuff, no. this book celebrates all the things that I already love. Not mm. only am I a child of the 80s, I'm a big geek anyway. So he's hitting all of my targets. Um, yeah. 
I agree with D. What I think he's getting at is that we can objectively look back at history now. We're far enough removed that we can look. We have a perspective on all these decades. And we can go, you know what? The 80s really might have actually been the best decade. Like, not talking, like, take nostalgia out of the equation. This might have been the best decade. But that said, I am unapologetically nostalgic. I am, I live in the 80s every day. I don't ever want to leave. And <laughs> if, I, if I'm creating the Oasis, it's going to be 1988 or 1984. <laughs> forever, unchanging. I probably around 2018, 2019, which I'd have to go back. I wonder when I first read this book. This, this book might have started it. But I just really, for the first time, just dove back into the yeah. 80s around 2018 or so. I remember. I spent about two years, <laughs> two and a half years, wa literally watching nothing but movies from the 80s. Yeah, I remember. Um, and <laughs> revisiting favorites that I hadn't seen in 30 years or, or seeing ones that I missed the first time around. And, um, and I just absolutely love the 80s. I, I found the Shirley Can't Be Serious podcast because I wanted more 80s in my life. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I had I wanted to talk about the movies. I wanted to talk about the music, and um, this book is like catnip for me. It's unfair what it does to me. Uh, I, I uh, don't want I, the worst thing about this book is the fact that it's finite. Now it's it's over. Good deal. All right, I have one last topic. I'm just going to let you think about for a minute, and I've got a few trivia questions. I don't want to keep everybody too long, but if you'll indulge me for a few more minutes, I've got a few trivia questions. I got so many good trivia questions here. I don't know which ones to pick, honestly. I mean, we may have to do a trivia show later just for trivia questions, but I'll throw out a few now. But I want you to think about this: if there's one pop culture thing that either was not included in the book or wasn't big enough, featured enough, in your opinion, what would you have added? Like, what would what if you've made a fourth gate or, a, or another big reference or something, what would you throw in? And I'll let you think about it for a minute, because that's a tough one, right? There's a lot of choices out there. Oh, Jason already knows. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm ready. I'm Go ready. Ahead. I thought about this. So for me, there's two things, right? Okay. The most difficult yet entrancing video game I've ever played that captured my fascination and I absolutely sucked at it is the, the video game Dragon Slayer. And so okay. to me, yeah. you know, that had the, the Don Bluth like animation and, and you had to play, mm -hmm. it, it's like a weird, you played a cartoon and I always wanted to see the dragon, you know, I always wanted to make it to the dragon and I could never do anything. So I, I think that that would be a really cool somehow incorporate that into a gate or something like that. So that's one. That's good. And number two, for me, I think the movie or the video game Tron, yeah. uh, the life cycles and yep. the discs and living inside the computer and sort of battling out inside the computer, all of that stuff. And it's it's pure 80s and it's awesome. And it really captured my imagination as a kid. So those two things, those are my two. I'm really surprised that he didn't include those two because I agree with you. Those are two very... I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm frankly surprised that since you mentioned those, that they're not because yeah, because they're they're game related, which is so much of what's in there, and they're big. They were big things, and he barely even, yeah, he barely even. I think he might mention Tron, but if he does, it's just very briefly, if at all. So, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Anybody else got one offhand? You want to think about it a little bit more? Well, I mean, it's hard to talk about the '80s and and not mention Michael Jackson. I think that's like the that's big true thing yeah. from the decade. Um, that, well, Ready Player Two, we do get a big print section. Let's 
I'll just point that out. Okay. But not Michael Jackson though. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. All I got. But no, I think that's good. Yeah, D, do you have a thought? Um, I yeah, I was gonna say this is this is again off the cuff, but a lot of my youth, I remember um, Super Mario Brothers, which didn't seem to be a big part of the the book at all, and um, TV sitcoms. He mentions Family yeah. Ties. Yes, that's about that's the only about one. it. Yeah. And right. you've got, I mean, you've got the Cosby show, you've got Growing Pains, you've got Cheers, you get all of these iconic TV shows that I feel like he could have, he could have done more with that. I think that probably what Jason said was probably better suited for the book because you've got questing, you know, with Dragon Slayer um, mm-hmm. and Tron and that kind of thing. But just as a, those were some very big parts of my childhood. Uh, I would have I would have thrown in some more TV yeah. sitcoms. I, I think the later the latter half of the '80s are largely ignored or neglected in the mm-hmm. book. I think Klein is more of a late '70s, early '80s That's guy. That's fair. I think I think we see that. Um, probably the only thing the book was missing was a virtual recreation of the inside of the hotel of The Shining. It would have been good. Included <laughs> that. <laughs> that wasn't the one they were going to use in the movie. It was. It was. Was it? They were going to do Blade Runner, I think, and they didn't have the rights to it or something, or they couldn't do it somehow. The thing I Ugh. think that's the most shocking omission to me is Indiana Jones. Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that, but then I remembered I, specifically. I w- he calls it his Grail Diary from. Okay. Uh, from the third one, yeah. and so I was like, I was like, they didn't have much Indiana Jones. By the way, side sidebar here, I went to go see my dad. I picked up his 1993 Ram Charger from him. It has a tape deck in it that still works. I bought the Dirty Dancing soundtrack today because it was the only tape <laughs> that I could find that was worth buying. But <laughs> as we're driving, he's telling me he's got this film as lit class, and he's like, I, I we're driving. I don't remember what made me say it, but I'm like, hey, have you ever seen all of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Like, have you seen that last scene, you know? And he was like, no. And in my film is lit class, we were supposed to watch it. And I was so excited because I was going to see the end. And then they all voted to watch this movie called Stardust instead. And I was like, what? He's like, I know. He goes, I always know what we're going to pick because I always am voting for the movie that we pick. And it was me and one other guy in this whole class who voted for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm like, son, when we get to dad's house, the first thing that we're going to do is turn it on. And you and I are going to watch that together with my dad. (laughs) So we had three generations of Gravesmen watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. and. Melting with each other. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very <laughs> nice. All right. La- last thing we're going to do. I got some trivia questions. I guess whoever can, uh, whoever knows the answer, raise your hand or shout it out or however we want to do it. Nothing. Nothing formal. We'll actually like keep score and stuff when we if we do a whole uh, trivia episode. But I'm just going to throw you out a few uh, a okay. few samplers here, real quick. Uh, the Oasis is sh- the Oasis universe. The in universe Oasis. Is shaped like what 80s item? Yes. Rubik's Cube. It, it is. Rubik's Cube. Yes. Just come he just said or shout it out. I went with the bomb. That's fine. That's fine. Thanks, Dido. Ja- <laughs> <laughs> James, Halliday's, James Halliday's first computer was a TRS-80, but what computer had he asked for for Christmas and been given the TRS-80 instead? 
David. Oh, 64. Yes. <laughs> what he said. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm not going to shout it out this time. All you right. Know it. You I'm guys are. I'm going to take shouting. I'm going to get. I'm going to get harder here. Um, y'all are doing really well. Seven hundred Portland Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> what image does Parzival see at the end of the second gate that tells him where to go to find the crystal key? You guys don't know the answer on this one. I know this one. Uh, he sees a star uh, in the shape of the star that was on the Rush uh, 2112 album. That's excellent. Yes, the star. That's exactly right. When Wade is choosing a place to connect to the Oasis in Columbus, Ohio, the most important factors to him are that it has a good, lag-free internet connection and what? What is the other most important factor when choosing his service provider in Columbus, Ohio? Up, oh, Jason. He needs a fat tube to up, <laughs> upload the uh, Zeta file or whatever. That he does, but that's not the one of the two things when he picks out. Okay. He finds that out once he goes in. Okay. He picks one out to go into based on it has a it has a good connection and optic gear. No, nope. I don't know. Can't remember. I'm let the time run out. Beep, beep, beep. Not owned by IOI. Oh yeah. yeah. yeah Doesn't want one yeah, owned by good. IOI. Og's mansion is designed to look like what fantasy location? Rivendell. Based- Rivendell, yes, from the movie, I guess. What item or items does Parzival find after the cataclysmic explosion? that enables him to reach the third gate when he's stuck in the basement of the castle. Yes. Uh, he finds Artemis's chucks. Artemis's chucks. Yes, the yeah. levitation <laughs> shoes. Man, y'all are yes. killing it. Two more. I've got, I've got some. Okay. <laughs> what does Oasis stand for? Oh, God. Good luck. Anthropomorphic simulation. Simulation in... Immersion, immersion system, system, ontologically anthropocentric, a uh, sensory immersion simulation. Oh, <laughs> nice. All right, here you go. So we we all know that clearing the first gate, you have to reenact war games. After Artemis clears the first gate, what does she? Co- oh, this is such a perfect question for this conversation. What does she complain that she did not have the option of doing? She complains that she didn't have the option of playing a different character. She would have played Ali Sheedy's That's character. That's it. That is correct. That is correct. Always complaining. Right. Always complaining. <laughs> That's it. One, one more. Who was the first Avatar to acquire the Jade Key? Sorrento. Sorrento, yeah. And that's the Crystal Key. Oh. Uh, oh, it was Artemis. Artemis. It was Artemis. That's right. She was the first to find the, the Copper Key and the first to acquire the Jade Key. And in fact, I have a question in here somewhere. Let me, all right, I'm, this is your bonus. Who are the only three avatars who ever held the number one spot on the scoreboard? There's only three that ever held the number one spot. Parzival, Artemis, Sorrento. Sorrento. That's it. Parzival, Artemis, Sorrento. H never right, did. I got one. I, I got one for you. Fired up. What was, what was Sorrento's employee number? <laughs> IOI, some, 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 six. <laughs> it's it's six I know the last three digits are three two one. It's IOI six oh six three two one, maybe? Six one six three two one? You're very close. 
It's uh, six five five three two one. I knew it was wow. three two one. Okay. <laughs> what was Sorrento's alternate name in the Oasis? Oh crap! That was in my show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you'd have to read the short story yes. by Andy Weir today. And there's a short story by Andy oh, Weir. That okay. alone is insane. Oh, I know the answer then. I know I the answer. It's, I can't find it. It's Lorenzo, Lorenzo, Lacinto. I think it's Larsino. Larsino. Thank Lurcino. you. Yeah. It's El Samo. <laughs> and what kind of vehicle is he traveling on at the beginning of that story? Because it did not appear uh, in the book, and I was very disappointed. It's from Space 1999, uh, but I can't remember the name of the vehicle. The Eagle. Yeah, Eagle One. Okay. Yeah. Eagle. Uh, yes. All right, listen. I want you to name Parzival's asteroid, his spaceship, and his car. I can do that. The asteroid is Falco. The ship, because this is a trivia question in here, but I'll throw it out. The ship is the Vonnegut, but it was originally the Keeley because it's the Firefly, which is the one right. from much later than the 80s that I was referring to earlier. Wow. I I said that they took up part a of, Part of the Whedon verse. There's some stuff from the 70s, like 2112, and there's stuff from way later, like the Firefly, which also shows up in the movie. The name of his car? Yeah. When does he have a car in the movie? In the book? He's got a car that is a combination of the DeLorean oh. from Back to the Future, That's the Knight right. Rider, Mm-hmm. And Ghostbusters. Uh, Ghostbusters, so it's like the Ecto something, Ecto eighty eight, Ecto eighty eight. Yes, that's it. Nice. Yeah. Between the three of you, you got it. You're like cherry <laughs> 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 pieces of it. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Three is the magic number. Has, that that was. <laughs> yeah. We turned the keys, guys. Very nice. Very good. Um, so, all right, to wrap things up then, um, I, let me ask you guys, have you, have you read any other works by Ernest Cline, and have you read Ready Player Two, anybody? I have also listened to the audiobook of Ready Player Two. I have not read Armada. I think I tried to start it and didn't, wasn't, didn't hold my interest. Um, but that's, and I've great. seen Fanboys, but I don't really remember much of it. It was a long time ago. I have read Armada. So if Ready Player One's a 10, I would say Armada's maybe a six and a half or a seven. Yeah, that seems about right to um, me. I have not read Ready Player Two yet because to me, it's like, hey, we've got a sequel to the greatest story ever told. It's like the New Testament part two. <laughs> uh, no thanks, I'll just stick with the original. But yeah, uh, it's, it's... And then, but I do love fanboys. I love the movie Fanboys by Ernest Klein. So I think it's fantastic. It's a quest movie. It's wrapped around Star Wars, and I, I absolutely love it. So Good I'd day. say that's an eight. I did a rabbit hole on that one. This is not the rabbit hole I was referring to. I'll do that one maybe when we do our trivia episode or whatever. But uh, I there was a pu- there was a push at some point to take the cancer element out of Fanboys, and people lost their minds and said this ridiculous, and that was a big petition. But they literally shot it. They shot an entire other set of scenes that did more raunchy humor and completely took the cancer part of it out. Wow. <laughs> Fortunately, they wiser men were chosen to make decisions. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, guys, I think we're going to wrap things up here, running out of time. But I appreciate you guys coming on so much. This was a whole lot of fun. And I look yeah. forward to reconvening to talk about the movie at some point soon, hopefully. Awesome. Oh, sounds great, man. All Thanks right. for having us. Yeah, this that is was a great fun. time. Really good time. So go and check out. Surely you can't be serious podcast with uh, Jason and D. 
And David will be along again soon to do something else with me, I'm sure. We're always working on something. And uh, we will see you guys in the next episode. The Rocket's going to get on out of here. We'll see you guys in the next This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.